season's greetings and welcome back to The Plunge. On a very fine episode number nine, Dan and I are celebrating Hanukkah in style, and we've got a menorah full of monstrosities from this week to discuss. We all shed tears with Keaton, the bullied child from Knoxville, Tennessee, until we realize that his mom, dad, and home state are all pretty unforgivably racist. And through the whole process, we never realized how fucked up it is in the first place to put a video of your son crying on the internet. Show favorite Sebastian Gorka has been tweeting for the culture, and that might be why the FCC and its chairman, Harlem Shake appropriator Ajit Pai, voted to end net neutrality rules. We attempt to crack a few jokes and find the silver lining in the decision to fuck up the greatest intellectual commons in history. Alabama voted to scorn God's love by electing Democrat Doug Jones over local pedophile Roy Moore in the Senate election this past Tuesday. We'll go through some of ex-Judge Moore's greatest hits and talk a bit about Alabama's new senator who has not yet been accused of sex pestilence. In the pop culture corner, we're talking Star Wars, spoiler-free of course, and we'll unpack Disney's cult of personality, the politics of space trauma, and why audiences might not be connecting with the most recent Star Wars installment. In continuing with the theme of guerrilla warfare, we read from the Old Testament and tell you a bit about the true story of Hanukkah that liberals don't want you to hear. For story time, we'll introduce Les Boulets des Mises, our brand new fine dining segment, with a journey into the belly of Comet Ping Pong, the Northwest DC hangout that was recently exposed as the nexus of the Pizzagate sex ring. I'll tell you all about the horrors I witnessed within and contextualize them in Washington's frankly criminal food scene. We've got all that and Roy Moore in this week's episode. We hope you enjoy it. Time to plunge! Dan Spaventa here for your weekly plunge of all things fucking shitty. It's been a shitty week. Sam's here too. That's right, Sam Wagstaff at W-A-G-S-T-A-N-K on Twitter. You can follow me at Spaventacular and Sam. What a week it's been. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a it's been a week. Um I haven't been crying as much as Keaton, the bullied child, though. Yeah, I think that needs to be unpacked first. (laughs) So, Sam, Keaton, the child, is a young southern boy who was bullied a lot, and his mom taped uh, him on her phone... (laughs) Which is fucked up. If, my, if fucked I was, like, up. crying and confiding in my mom, she just, like, films it and puts it on the internet. It's pretty fucked up. Yeah, this kid's mom videoed him crying about being bullied, and one of the things is, like, he gets, like, milk poured on him, which, <laughs> ironic considering the later revelations. So basically, Keaton went viral, LeBron James, uh, the cast of the Avengers, like, he's got all these people tweeting at him, posting on Instagram, like, Justin Bieber, 
all saying, like, you know, keep your chin up, you know, like, and they're, like, inviting him to stuff. Like, Jamila Hill invited him to the ESPN studios. Um, so Keaton basically all of a sudden was the, you know, the king of the, the king of the social media world. Like, all the celebs wanted to make him feel good or perhaps make themselves feel good. But then, a twist. Uh, after his Kickstarter made like sixty grand, oh, it was um, GoFundMe, not Kickstarter. GoFundMe, same funnier, thing. Funnier if it was Kickstarter, like, hey, fund <laughs> Keaton's like band. <laughs> no, it's his, no, it's his Patreon for more oh. videos. <laughs> okay, so afterwards, one dollar a month to see Keaton weep. <laughs> Get the third show. <laughs> Free third show. <laughs> Okay, so after, like, we we all felt bad for the kid who got bullied. We're, just, we're not trying to make fun of a kid who got bullied. But we are going to go in on his fucking parents. His mom had the wild, like, Confederate flag, like, like banner on Facebook or some shit. Um, and then it also came out that his estranged father um, is, like, also a white supremacist. I guess it's just, like, a little, a little slice of, like, fucking Knoxville, Tennessee life. <laughs> Um, well, hopefully this isn't too indicative, but, um, <laughs> his dad has a disgusting tattoo on his chest called, it says pure breed. Oh my God. Uh, Dan, do you have the photo of the man? Oh my God. He looks like a fucking like Aryan brother in prison. Like this guy is tatted up. He's <laughs> skinhead. Yeah, he's very season five of Breaking Bad. <laughs> um, uh, but he apparently was also sharing, like, white supremacy memes on Facebook. Like, ones that say, like, holy fuck, I love being white. Keep calm and be white pride. <laughs> and other, like, sweet memes. Apparently he's not close to this kid. But it, it's it's amazing that both this fucking biological kid's parents are, like, fucking white supremacists. His dad's name is also Sean White, like the fucking snowboarder. Um, really funny that his mom went on Good Morning America and said that we're not racist. That photo of my children draped in a Confederate flag <laughs> was meant to be ironic. Controversy is clouding Keaton's message after alleged social media posts some believe are from his mother, Kimberly Jones, caused a swift backlash from those who earlier quickly jumped online to support him. We're not racist. I mean, and people that know us know that. The Tennessee mother's Facebook account, which originally posted the bullying video, is now private. Jones told ABC News the photo of her family posing with the Confederate flag is real, but says it's not racist in any way. It was meant to be ironic and funny and extreme. I am genuinely, truly sorry. If I could take it back, I would. His mom needs to get off the fucking internet. She's just, like, ruining his life. It's, like, bit by bit. Yeah, so now Keaton Jones, his GoFundMe was shut down. Um, <laughs> but they don't know what to do with the money. I think there were issues about, like, returning it. Um, a lot of the celebrities disavowed him. I saw a video on Twitter of this MMA fighter talking about how the mom tried to basically said explicitly that <laughs> it was all for like money and she just wanted money yeah i saw that <laughs> it's horrible uh like 
I feel bad for the kid, maybe, because his parents, like, fuck, or his mom fucked him into this, like, situation. <laughs> Both his parents are just explicit racists. It was a real Ken Bone moment, you know? We had this, <laughs> yeah. we had this like, hero of internet um, posts, tweets, everything. Like, he's dominating the conversation. He's a trending topic. And then, uh... He's zero. <laughs> you find out the damning... <laughs> I mean, like, you know, the fucked up person in me thinks, like, maybe that's why the kids were pouring milk on him. They're like, your parents are racist. Well, exactly. (laughs) Like, Like, I was suggesting before that it was some sort of, like, alt-right statement. Yeah, for sure. Um, And then, of course, Leslie Lee, the third, like, brought it down with, like, the tweet that you pulled out, Dan. Yeah, Leslie Lee, the third of the Struggle Session podcast. uh, Great follow on Twitter. He said what needed to be said, I think. Uh, the white privilege angle. Uh, Tamir Rice's mother ended up living in a homeless shelter, but this racist piece of shit's racist son sheds a few tears and they instantly get 60K and the biggest movie stars in the world flying them around the country. Fuck this hell world. Do not at me with any bullshit on this. I mean, let's just leave it there. Fuck these, this like nasty white family. Let's talk about another nasty white man. Let's talk about Sebastian Gorka. So, Gorka tweeted, we all know who Gorka is, right? Gorka! Son of Moonraker! Disgraced former Trump advisor, uh, Bond villain, Fox News commentator, Hungarian freak. His head is bigger than God. (laughs) So, Gorka tweeted, I love this. Take the culture back! And he attached this screenshot of a Facebook post. By a man named Brad Blakeman, who... (laughs) He's not real. He can't be real. Not with that name. Brad Blakeman shared a photo of his Starbucks cup where he demanded that the barista write his name as Trump MAGA, spreading Xmas joy at Starbucks in D.C. When asked for a name on my cup, I said... Trump, MAGA, with a smirk. The barista said, we just need one name. I replied, it goes together. Then I sat back and made them call out, Trump, MAGA, decaf cap, three times before I picked it up. Tis the season. So that's what Sebastian Gorka, former Trump aide, says, I love this. Take the culture back. (laughs) How is that taking the culture back? (laughs) Man. Tis the season to be a fucking chud. <laughs> like, what's with these guys at Starbucks? Why are they so obsessed with Starbucks? Yeah, I remember the Trump Cup fiasco of last year when the MAGA chuds were trying to bully, <laughs> speaking of bullying, the baristas at Starbucks because they assume they're all libs. Do you think Sebastian Gorka will take the culture back? Uh, you mean the Vitezzi Ren culture? <laughs> <laughs> you can have that one. So we found out that the FCC made the disturbing decision this week to repeal net neutrality. And Ajit Pai, the piece of shit head of the FCC, appointed by Obama at Mitch McConnell's urging. Um, That's the worst part. I know. It's so annoying. Well, gotta just uh, cut a deal with Mitch McConnell. That always fucking works, doesn't it? 
Ajit Pai posted this horrendous video um, <laughs> where, where he's trying to defend, like, uh, repealing net neutrality, saying, like, you can still do the Harlem Shake and, like, stupid shit like that. Hi, I'm Ajit Pai. I'm the chairman of the FCC. Recently, there's been quite a bit of conversation about my plan to restore internet freedom. Here are just a few of the things you'll still be able to do on the internet after these Obama-era regulations are repealed. You can still gram your food. Quality. Are you selfie or just... You can still post photos of cute animals, like puppies. <laughs> you can still shop for all your Christmas presents online. Yes, got that bulk deal on fidget spinners. He says that you, you could still gram your food, and then he gets like a bowl of, of some shit and pours like Takis over it, and then sriracha, and then he's like, it's perfect. It's like supposed to be ironic and quirky and relatable. It's also, it's on the Daily Caller and has, um, has that motherfucker. Uh, I'm gonna read the, from the Hill. I just, I like the way their uh, copy uh, is lays it out there. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai appeared Wednesday in a video promoting his impending net neutrality repeal Dancing with a woman who has a history of promoting the so-called Pizzagate conspiracy. Yes! The Pizzagate conspiracy theory, which proliferated during the final days of the 2016 presidential race, posits without evidence that high-ranking Democrats were involved in a non-existent pedophile ring based out of a Washington, D.C. pizzeria. In December 2016, <laughs> a man motivated by the conspiracy theory fired a gun in the business. That's going to come up later, but that lady's name is Marine, Martina Marcota, um, and this is on the Daily Caller, and uh, G. Pai is just, he's such a greasy, like, asshole. He used to be an attorney for Verizon, which is, you know, maybe goes a little bit to explain why he would get rid of, like, the best part of the internet. Uh, I think there was a good tweet from uh, Brian Feldman about it. He said, um, Ajit Pai says, the internet is the greatest free market innovation in history. And he goes, my dude, it was a DARPA project for like two decades. Uh, DARPA being the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is a government agency that was like instrumental in developing the internet. Um, which, I, I mean, it's just crazy. This is like such a weird little micro, sorry, microcosm for that whole like right wing idea that the private sector innovates everything and makes everything better with like competition and shit. When in reality, I mean, they're just capitalizing on some on some fucking government research here. Yeah, and it's just going to be the fucking consumer who suffers. It's not these people. Yeah, I mean, definitely like a depressing story we can't really be that funny about. But I do want to mention... Um, this awesome current affairs article called a public internet is possible, which um, talks about some of like the examples like in um, Chattanooga, Tennessee and some other cities where they basically had like state run internet that was faster than Google fiber, the fastest ISP in that area at that time. And uh, it's just the business as usual beforehand with net neutrality wasn't an ideal situation for internet. I mean, the U.S. has, like, pretty medium to low-grade internet speeds for the developed world, and we can have a better world, but I think that article was great at focusing on, like, a positive idea of what internet should look like in this country instead of, like, I mean, it, it's it's hard, though, because I feel like we're always under siege in this country. It's always, like, stuff is being taken away from us. It's hard to, like, I guess, uh, campaign for the stuff we, like, actually want, right? Yeah, definitely, and in this story, I think... 
what's really interesting is there seems to be almost like a near universal desire by the people to not have this thing repealed and it seems that you know government plutocrats and bureaucrats are the ones who are making this decision regardless of you know the amount of public comments they've gotten which apparently they're saying that we're like a lot of the public millions of public comments that were received about the uh, net neutrality repeal were russian bots oh come on with the fucking russian bots thing that's the answer for any time they don't someone doesn't have an answer but um at least, I mean, I think we have, so the FCC said that um, it's going to take probably like several months for the repeal to be formally approved by the Office of Management and Budget. But uh, this is definitely a case where there's money to be made by corporations if this fucking passes. So there's going to be a lot of like will behind it. But I also think that, like you said, it's so massively unpopular that, um, I mean, people will just go wild, honestly, if it's if they lose the access to, like, free porn. We all know this. So, I think it's time to press onward to a story from this week that truly, I think, gives us some hope. <laughs> a, a Pyrrhic victory at best. Fucking Roy Moore, the almost certainly a pedophile who was running for Senate in Alabama lost to the Democratic nominee, an attorney named Doug Jones. He hasn't conceded yet, though, as of recording. And uh, he's still just, you put out that crazy video. Where he's he was a like, god ah! with the side. Yes! He's he was really like playing the... up the uh, god angle as if, you know, somehow, like, like Doug Jones will be like, smite, smite, smote. <laughs> yeah, fucking like Satanist Doug Jones. <laughs> It's like, a, like, I don't know. Uh, Roy Moore is so much crazier. Like, the the pedophilia thing is extremely disturbing. You know, being accused of, uh, like, illicit relations with fucking, like, a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old. Disgusting. But um, he also, like, embezzled from his own foundation. At, like, he paid himself $108,000 a year uh, in just some blatant, like, charity fraud, which I think is a thing we talked about in the Trump episode. Um, he was suspended from the Alabama Supreme Court for last year for refusing to uphold um, the Supreme Court, the federal Supreme Court's, like, decision on marriage equality. Um, he's an insane ideologue. Yeah, extremely homophobic, just all of the things that, even if he wasn't a pedophile, this guy is a completely, like, his ideas disqualify him. He's a monster. (laughs) He was was unseated from the the, um, Alabama Supreme Court uh, for uh, refusing to uphold that shit, like, for up to uphold marriage inequality. Like, he he basically just, like, took, like, lost his job over his insane devotion to this idea that, like, gay people are like ruining america's like moral soul <laughs> him and kim davis should fuck i know right they're a match made in heaven um i mean we all we all know that kayla moore uh roy moore's fucking wife is very odd uh <laughs> he met her when she was like 16 or 17 years old uh <laughs> Uh, Okay, so in his book, Roy Moore said that he had seen Kayla Moore many years before he married her, um, although it doesn't specify how old she was when she first caught his eye. Women who spoke to the Washington Post said Moore asked them for dates in the late 1970s. 
Moore left Alabama in 1983, traveled to Texas and Australia, returned, and at the same time he met Kayla Kassor at the church Christmas party. Um, many years before, he had attended a dance recital at Gadsden State Junior College. I remembered one of the special dances performed by a young woman who's... Oh, why is he going to dance recitals? <laughs> at a junior college! <laughs> performed by a young woman whose first and last names began with the letter K. It was something I had never forgotten. <laughs> so not only was she young, but her initials were K and K. He's like, one more letter and you got something I can really get behind. <laughs> Isn't that insane? Um, of course, she dr said that insane thing about like the Jew attorney, which we're going to play the audio from. Fake news would tell you that we don't care for Jews. I tell you all this because I've seen it all, so I just want to set the record straight while they're here. Yeah. <laughs> One of our attorneys is a Jew. I think this uh, LA Times article that we attached in the show notes uh, says it really well. If Kayla Moore was trying to convince the public that her husband, Roy Moore, is not an anti-Semite, she hardly could have done a worse job. Her election eve comment, <laughs> one of our attorneys is a Jew, became an instant punchline, summing up Roy Moore's long history of overt bigotry just hours before polls opened in Alabama. <laughs> Okay, let's go into some of the bigotry, Dan. Um, this is coming from another LA Times article about like a, a something a, like an event where he spoke. He said they said that uh, in response to a question from one of the only African Americans in the audience at a Roy Moore speaking event, um, who asked when Moore thought America was last great, Moore acknowledged the nation's history of racial divisions, but said, "I think it was great at the time when families were united, even though we had slavery. They cared for one another. Our families were." strong our country had a direction jesus christ hey you know we had our big family plantation some people didn't choose to live there but it was still great <laughs> it reminds me of walter sobchak and the big lebowski he's like say what you just will about the tenets of national socialism but at least it's an ideology but uh, Roy Moore also said that 9-11 was divine punishment for, like, American sins. Uh, he said, because he, like, you had... Al-Qaeda? That's, like, what they say. <laughs> yeah, he's basically... Yeah, there's, like, that weird uh, intersection between, like, fucking, like, insane, yeah, like, Al-Qaeda and, like, the religious right in the United States. But he said, because you have despised his word and trusted perverseness and oppression and say thereon... Therefore, this iniquity will be to you as a breach ready to fall, swell out in a high wall, whose breaking cometh suddenly at an instance. Sounds a little bit like the Pentagon, whose, broken, whose breaking came suddenly in an instant, doesn't it? <laughs> he continued, if you think that's a coincidence, if you go to verse 25, there should be up on every high mountain and upon every hill rivers and streams of water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers will fall. <laughs> so there's like literal fire and brimstone. Brimstone can melt steel beams. Fire and fury. <laughs> uh, he also was like, he's like, what's this thing about him? What's this thing about Roy Moore calling Native Americans and Asians reds <laughs> and yellows? What a fucking asshole. 
He's like, now we have blacks and whites fighting, reds and yellows fighting, Democrats and Republicans fighting, men and women Holy fighting. Shit. What's going to unite us? Um, I mean, he's bananas. Uh, did you see the video of him like uh, trying to ride a horse? Because he said he was going to ride a horse to the polls, and he fucking rode one. But it's obvious he has no fucking idea how to ride a horse. It's like about to buck him. It's going in like every direction. He like just like the thing just carries him like off camera. It's clearly not intentional at all. No, he obviously has very little experience riding a horse (laughs) and, like, looks like a complete fucking fool. And he fucking lost because of turnout from black voters. All the statistics suggest that. And people have actually, I thought, I think I saw T, uh, Ricky Rawls on Twitter, talk about how there's been this sort of, like, fetishizing of black voters as, like, mystical heroes since the election. I would agree, Dan, and um, I think, like, what's um, most heinous is that, like, they talked about how, like, 30% of black voters turned out in, um, in Alabama to vote against Roy Moore, but, like, they never talk about how wide voter suppression and, like, racist policies have made it really difficult like to the point that 30 percent turnout is actually really high like people didn't question that they were just like oh wow great job we did it it's like no that means you have so much can you imagine if like a hundred percent turned out in alabama you think it would ever go red ever again you think texas with like its hispanic population would ever go red ever again if a hundred percent of hispanic people fucking voted like it's obvious that you need to get like everyone remove like basically all restrictions on voting if that's what like democrats should be doing anyway um and there's it's it's a no-brainer and i guess the other hilarious part about this was just the shameful defeat the humiliation of steve bannon yeah (laughs) full-throated uh roy moore supporter he was on stage introducing him a few times uh in the last week I wouldn't be surprised if he wrote some speeches for him either. Like, Roy Moore sounds like Steve Bannon. And I think the general consensus among Republicans on the Hill was that they're pretty happy they don't have to deal with Roy Moore coming in anymore and, you know, handcuffing themselves to that, like, corpse. But the thing is, it's going to be kind of... I feel like it's going to follow a lot of these legislators into 2018 that they supported this pedophilic like racist freak yeah i mean if he had won the rnc wouldn't have like they wouldn't have given a fuck because that's what power is about in politics it's not about being the nicest guy in the room it's about taking power like trump who was you know fucking at least as blasphemous and like disgusting as roy moore to like one and they're not denouncing him they're never gonna like recant that their support for trump anymore i mean one or two republicans like your jeff flakes and shit are gonna like have the nominal moments where they spout off but in general the rnc is fine with power but uh we should definitely talk a little bit about doug jones um doug jones is actually like kind of cool i mean he did convict kkk members who did a church bombing as a u.s attorney the only thing is that like if you go on his like senate page he has like this bit called priorities like his person his website and it doesn't even like there's no policy on it it's just like bring integrity back to washington uh healthcare we can't go backward and like 
you know, platitudes that sound good. Um, he says, I believe healthcare is a right. And it, he says it should not just be a privilege limited to the wealthy. But he didn't say like, oh, the only way to solve that is like single payer healthcare or anything. It's just like, you know, politics is just now it's like all a war of ideas instead of like what they're actually going to like materially deliver for people. Yeah, totally. I think you can't always expect these campaign websites to answer all your questions because generally nobody fucking reads them and uh, campaigns I feel like might benefit from the vagueness uh, that was indicated in the, the Doug Jones website. Um, oh, what was this op-ed that the Washington Post threw out there right after the Doug Jones win? Okay, so Dan, this was like one of uh, the op-eds I was expecting to see as soon as I heard that Doug Jones was pretty much going to win, um, although Roy Moore still has not conceded. But this is by Jennifer Rubin. Uh, it's called The Democrats' Miraculous Victory in Alabama. And there are two quotes that I just wanted to pull from it that are just so fucking corny and exactly what the Democrats do wrong every time. I mean, the Washington Post is speaking from an explicitly, like, Democrat line on this. Um, they say, kudos to Jones, who ran a disciplined race, referencing but not exploiting Roy's alleged victims and positing an affirmative message for his state that included health care and education. And it's like, he did say that he values those things, but he didn't say how or, like, in what no, way. No, he didn't run um, on any specific, like, you know, hardlining healthcare or education things. He's just like, well, we're not going to make it worse. <laughs> I'm not a pedophile. <laughs> Which is great if you're running against a pedophile, but otherwise he probably wouldn't have won. And if Roy Moore hadn't been, like, a pedophile and maybe had just been, like, a racist, fucking uh, homophobic like goon um a guy who thinks that like muslims should not be allowed to serve on congress like a guy who's just a completely unfit for like modern society then he might have still won i mean the most heinous part was um at the end it said like we pray that the defeat of Moore initiates some soul searching in the gop a determination to hold to moral and intellectual standards and to reject if not trump then trumpism if pure undistilled trumpism is a dud in a deep red state Perhaps Republicans will conclude it is a failed political philosophy for the country at large. And it's just like, they're not going to do that. The, the Republicans just want power. They don't care what the message of is. Of course not. They're just going to move on to the next race where hopefully their candidate is not like a kid fucker. Yeah. Um, I want to read this tweet by uh, Neil Brennan, who is a co-creator of The Chappelle Show, really good comedian. He wrote... If we can beat a pedophile by 0.8%, we can do anything. Aww. Which I think is, like, kind of important to keep in the back of your head that, like, Doug Jones didn't win by, like, a landslide, all things considered. Not at all. Not at all. So, let's enter, right now, the pop culture corner for this week, Sam, with, let's be real, it's what everyone's talking about, everyone's jizzing themselves about this week, it's... Star Wars, The Last Jedi. The last one. <laughs> Neither of us have seen this movie, so, and I know absolutely no plot details, so don't flee if you're afraid of spoilers. I, I wouldn't uh, put out any Star Wars spoilers on this podcast. We'd start getting death threats pretty quickly. <laughs> so, 
I want to start this conversation by just acknowledging the it's just entirely like capitalist enterprise that Disney, which is now merged with 21st Century Fox, is and how much it takes advantage of the theaters that distribute the Star Wars films. So the Mary Sue has this article about that and it says in an unprecedented move even for disney and star wars disney is demanding 65 percent of the ticket sales from the last jedi from theaters that want to screen it in addition as reported by slash film they're also forcing theaters to screen the film in their largest auditorium for at least four weeks but typical disney movies only require a two-week commitment i don't know that seems uh kind of Kind of like they're saying a big uh, fuck you to the distributor, to the people who, not distributors, to people who show the, the movie. Yeah, for sure. And I think that it's already kind of difficult to make money uh, operating a movie theater. Am I right? Well, yeah, the box office only really support, only really, you know, is supported, you know, in a mass sense by these uh, blockbuster movies and sequels and, you know, remakes. I mean, this just goes to show, I guess, like, what we're in for, uh, you know, seeing as much, like, consolidation as we've seen in the film industry, um, and especially, like, seeing, like, this movie, which is both a sequel and a reboot, basically, (laughs) like these new Star Wars movies, the Disney ones. Oh, there's certainly a complete disregard for a lot of uh, parts of the original canon. So, Dan, would you just how what would you describe your level of Star Wars uh, fandom as? I didn't see the movies really. I think until Attack of the Clones came out, and I kind of watched all of them at that point so it wasn't something i you know watched when i was young my parents weren't really sci-fi fantasy people so you know i know a lot of people like you know their childhood was defined by star wars i cannot say that uh was me and you know i'm not a you know i'm not a big star wars guy i didn't even see rogue one Well, I uh, definitely can't say that about myself. I'm like pretty big. I was like raised on it as a little kid. I think I, I would estimate that I've owned um, at least 10 different Star Wars video games across the course of my life. Probably more like 15 if I had to like be honest with myself. Definitely was like a big part of my childhood. I think because we were, we were kids, I guess, when the new the prequels were coming out, which are, you know, abominable films that should never have been made. But um, these new ones, I feel like there's this weird thing that Disney's doing where they're trying to avoid the stigma of the prequels so much and trying to really like pull out all the stops to make it so that like old Star Wars heads can get into these new movies. And... I just don't see that happening because these are not like, I don't know, they, they don't have the, they have more of like the aesthetic qualities of the uh, original films. They have like the puppets instead of CGI for the most part. But there's also just lots of like, uh, you know, J.J. Abramsy like action sequences that would never have happened in the original Star Wars movies. Uh, part, probably a lot because of like the limitations in filmmaking at the time. But also, just, I don't know, it just seems incongruent as someone who, like, grew up with the films and has loved it, has loved, like, the Star Wars franchise his whole life. 
Yeah, it kind of felt like a sequel to the J.J. Abrams Star Trek universe. It, it totally exactly is. exactly the same. Which also fell off hard. Like, the the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies, the most yeah, recent one. True. Star Trek Beyond is such a fucking terrible movie. Rachel and I saw it in theaters. You, it's one of those movies where there's, like, so much CGI and bullshit going on in the ba- and the battle sequences that you can't tell which way is up or who's exploding. You have no idea what's going on. Um, it was worse than Independence Day Resurgence. <laughs> that was my take on it, even though it had like a 99 on fucking like Metacritic, and <laughs> obviously uh, fucking Independence Day Resurgence was a trash film as well. Uh, I just, I, I can't get too down with Star Wars. It feels like just the ultimate cash grab these days. I get so irritated at this, like, you know, people post tweets and like, post on Facebook things like if you don't cry while watching this you have no soul like when the trailer for Last Jedi comes out and I'm just like yo if you cry during this like you're just like a complete like you completely like brainwashed by (laughs) Disney (laughs) there really is like a cult of personality around the most recent Star Wars movies I noticed it with Force Awakens but yeah I mean Granted, I, I'm corny enough to fucking cry at, like, seeing the Millennium Falcon flying around in the trailer for the new Star Wars movie, but that's just because, like, I was raised on this. It's, like, part an, a part of my life, I guess, and um, I can't control it. It's, like, biological, and, like, th- that's where I think you get this sense of, like, if you don't like these new movies, it's either because you're an elitist or people will also try to argue that they're ra- you're racist because like the new Star Wars movies are a lot more diverse than the ones that came out in like the fucking the, what the original ones came out in the 70s and they're like the new ones came out during the Bush years um, so two pretty racist times in history but uh, I mean fuck like people are really obsessed with these new ones and uh, nothing embodies more of this like weird cult of personality than the fact that uh, something that's come out since this movie came out is that Rotten Tomatoes score um, for critics for Last Jedi is, did you say 90%? And then for audiences, it's like 60%. Let's get accurate here, because the disparity is even wider than that. It's 93% from critics. So that means 93% of critics uh, gave it a positive review versus an audience score of 56 percent that liked it oh sounds like a 40 percent difference last jedi rotten tomatoes audience score unbelievable is lower than the fucking justice league (laughs) i mean i'm so nervous to see this movie because i know i have to see it and and i'm gonna have to pay like the fucking 30 bucks for two tickets to this fucking shit but <laughs> oh god, it's also like three hours long. I'm surprised at this because the director is Ryan Johnson, who directed some of like the best episodes of Breaking Bad, and like he's a talented guy. Uh, that movie Brick was him. I heard he didn't have as much of like a uh, stamp on this movie. Like it felt very just churned out of the assembly line, just purely to set up more movies. For sure, yeah. No, I think that at a certain level, you don't direct a Star Wars movie. The Star Wars movie, like the Star Wars universe, is going to direct you. 
you can't do anything outlandish with Star Wars. You gotta kind. Of, or, uh, I mean, I literally just spent the first couple minutes of this Star Wars talk complaining about how you know all oh, these new movies aren't the same as the old movies. I miss the old movies. Like I, I literally did my old man spiel, even though I'm not old enough to even. I was not even like a, a glimmer in anyone's eye in the fucking seventies. <laughs> it's not my culture at all. Well, let's dive into perhaps the politics of star wars maybe um yes i found this uh huffington post article from uh one of those stupid like may the fourth days oh um, god i hate that shit yeah it came out on may 4th 2017 all right the films at their core explore the nuanced relationship between a state and its people and how a democracy can slip into a strict dictatorship George Lucas has admitted that one of the biggest influences on the series was the Nixon era. In an interview with the Chicago Tribune, Lucas said Star Wars was really about the Vietnam War and that period where Nixon was trying to run for a second term, which got me to thinking historically about how do democracies get turned into dictatorships because the democracies aren't overthrown, they're given away. Lucas has also expressed that Emperor Palpatine, or Darth Sidious, was directly inspired by Nixon, which makes a lot of sense given the nose in the making of Star Wars Return of the Jedi. When asked if Emperor Palpatine was a Jedi at one point in his life, Lucas responded, No, he was a politician. Richard M. Nixon was his name. He subverted the Senate and finally took over and became an imperial guy, and he was really evil, but he pretended to be a nice guy. God, Lucas is so delirious. <laughs> this is what happens when you make a billion dollars off of, like, the most l- ludicrous fantasy. <laughs> Anakin Skywalker is a promising young man who is turned to the dark side by an older politician and becomes Darth Vader. George Bush is Darth Vader. Cheney is the emperor. Oh, come on. <laughs> that also sounds like that sort of like sounds like it absolves George Bush somehow. Which I know I don't get exactly. down with. I, it's so weird. I, George Lucas is just trying to pretend that the shitty prequels he made um, in the 2000s are like coherent movies with a message and not just like just CGI garbage. <laughs> That's such bullshit. I, I don't know. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Famously, Lucas got some heat for giving Anakin Skywalker a line of dialogue almost verbatim from a Bush speech. If you're not with me, you're my enemy. Bush's line was, you're either with us or you're the enemy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) That makes sense. I mean, it came out during the Bush years. Like, uh, I didn't really think of the prequel as like a prime Bush years, like... uh, metaphor yeah i guess that's so funny um it's a wild allegory wow and then when rogue one came out this article in vox that we also included talks about how the alt-right uh took offense to one of the film's writers saying the empire was a white supremacist organization and then disney came out uh disney executive uh, Chief Bob Iger made Good the claim, Lord. frankly, this is a film that the world should enjoy. It is not a film that is, in any way, a political film. When, in fact, the film's plot re- literally centers around rebelling against the tyrant. 
Right, but like they can't have it be like an actually revolutionary movie. It's a it's a movie that represents the worst elements of like right wing capitalism and its impact and the way it's marketed, as we saw with like Disney forcing film or theaters to run it for four weeks and pay extra to have like the rights to like portray this three hour fucking monstrosity that nobody likes. Um, and but the subject matter, I mean, at least the original one, you know, Star Wars and New Hope, which came out in 77, is like the hero's journey, like the classic hero's journey um, that you see in like the Bible and, you know, any uh, lots of other works of like epic literature. Luke Skywalker is basically a marginalized person on like a depopulated planet who is like radicalized when the Empire kills his fucking entire family. And then he goes and like joins a bunch of terrorists and blows up a major government base. Like, he, you know, there is like political elements in the plot of Star Wars, but the way it's marketed and its role in our society is reinforcing right-wing capitalism as much as possible. It's kind of a weird contradiction. Yeah, and before we move on, I just want to reiterate, like the conversation about the disparity in the Rotten Tomatoes audience score and the critics score... I think this is pretty, this is a pretty big uh, boil on Disney's asshole, you know? <laughs> like, that just shows, like, oh, so clearly you're, you're coercing critics with, like, favors or, or you know, uh, incentives to give your movies great reviews. We saw that the LA Times got banned from a screening of Thor because of an investigative story they wrote about Disney. So, I don't know. I just think that this is so funny because it just shows, like, man, they, they could just make such a subpar product, clearly, if that much of the audience score doesn't like this. Yeah, I mean... Disney is the evil emper empire. Uh, Mickey Mouse is under the Darth Vader mask. Uh, we're all doomed. Uh, yeah. Guess we'll have to move on now. I heard emo Kylo Ren is tweeting again, so we'll have to check that out. Okay. So, Sam, you wanted to discuss the story of Hanukkah. And I think as we mentioned on like the last episode, uh, a lot of Gentiles out there think that Hanukkah is like Jewish Christmas. Um, it's not... Like, Rosh Hashanah is our big holiday, and Yom Kippur, those are our high holidays. Those happen in the fall. But I'm not a religious guy at all. This is my Linus in the Charlie Brown Christmas, when he's like, and the angel came down and talked to the Lord. He like gives that, like, you know, monologue uh, in the auditorium, and everyone in the 60s, like, cried. This is my version of that. This is from Second Maccabees. It's when the Jews who have been fighting in like guerrilla warfare and defending themselves finally get to like chill out for a second this is what hanukkah is about they have like the eight day party the oil burns good for a few days but then on like the fourth night you got to figure they were like this is some fucking oil like the first night they might have been like huh great whatever normal second night they're like oh this oil's a little better than normal and then like the third one they're like oh shit this is some good oil the fourth night they're like we got a motherfucking miracle on our hands they were like, these are some killer dabs. <laughs> yeah, it was the dankest oil. Anyway, uh, I'll start off with the word of the Lord. 
Judas Maccabeus and his followers, under the leadership of the Lord, recaptured the temple and the city of Jerusalem. They tore down the altars which foreigners had set up in the marketplace and destroyed the other places of worship that had been built. They purified the temple and built a new altar. Then, with new fire, started by striking flint, they offered sacrifice for the first time in two years, burned incense, lighted the lamps, and set out the sacred loaves. After they had done all this, they lay face down on the ground and prayed that the Lord would never again let such disasters strike them. They begged him to be merciful when he punished them for future sins and not hand them over anymore to barbaric pagan Gentiles. They rededicated the temple on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, the same day of the same month on which the temple had been desecrated by the Gentiles. The happy celebration lasted eight days, like the Festival of Shelters, and the people remembered how only a short time before they had spent the Festival of Shelters wandering like wild animals in the mountains and living in caves. But now, carrying green palm branches and sticks decorated with ivy, they paraded around, singing grateful praises to him who had brought about the purification of his own temple. Everyone agreed that the entire Jewish nation should celebrate this festival each year. So that's the story of Hanukkah. So they just fucking destroyed a bunch of shit? Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is actually kind of grim um, with Trump trying to make, like, what, make uh, Jerusalem now the capital, or put the U.S. embassy in Jer- Jerusalem. Uh, <laughs> like, retaking the city is kind of grim. And destroying the other places of worship uh, <laughs> is also kind of grim. But in general, I guess this just proves my point that this is not uh, Jewish Christmas. <laughs> It's just us getting another eight days of respite from the barbaric pagan Gentiles. Does this mean we get to go destroy the monument to the victims of abortion? <laughs> as, as like, uh, holy Jews? <laughs> yeah, are you saying you want, like, um, Hanukkah to just be, like, um, the purge for Jews? We're just allowed to go bur- around burning down churches and stuff. Well, not burning down the church, just, like, the pagan, barbaric, Gentile idols. Okay. All right, yeah, I guess we could direct our rage against idols rather than, like, the buildings themselves, like, the edifices. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, we're not coming for you. Not not over Hanukkah, anyway. <laughs> so, let's move on to story time this week, introducing our fine dining correspondent, Sam... Le Wag. Hello, folks. Uh, this is our little fine dining corner. We're going to be doing this whenever I feel like I have been to a place that inspires me. The segment is called Le Boulet de Mais. This week, I went somewhere that I had been planning to go to to try out, to sample and do some investigation on. But I wasn't intending to go this past weekend. It just happened to be next to a bookstore I was trying to do some Christmas shopping at. And once I saw it, I had to go in, and it made an impact on me. So I'm just going to get right into it. It is a sad truth today that many of us feel helpless, subordinated to the machinations of powerful people and forces beyond our control. In an age of nuclear weapons, macroeconomics, and big data, we often feel powerless as individuals, painfully aware that we can be physically, financially, and even intellectually annihilated at any moment. We have more information than ever available at our fingertips, yet we cannot overcome the epistemological challenges of discerning reliable facts or any sort of objective truth. 
But some of us won't trade our dignity for peaceful anonymity. Some of us want to make an impression, and some of us need to see what's going on with our own two eyes. That's why, on December 4th, 2016, 28-year-old Edgar Madison Welch of Salisbury, North Carolina, walked into Comet Ping Pong, the unassuming hive of the sweeping Pizzagate conspiracy, demanding answers. <laughs> Northwest Washington, where Comet Ping Pong lies, is a wretched bourgeois place. Oddly suburban and woodsy, scores of white people there decorate their lawns with resistancy lawn signs. I'm sure that a large percentage of safety pin boxes get sent to its bleached white neighborhoods, even though its inhabitants nevertheless have faith that the police risk their lives to protect them. This is also the sort of place where people are more than willing to pay $14 to $18 for a 10-inch Neapolitan pizza named the Ich bin ein Berliner, or the Calamity Jays. Seriously, there must be a billion places in the nation's capital that sell these shits. Even in more civilized parts of the city, such as the nightlife hub at 14th and U Street, the pizza catastrophe continues with terrible late-night joints that will sell you a jumbo pizza slice for $7. Yes, seven United States dollars. These greasy monstrosities are maybe one and a quarter times larger than your average buck fifty New York slice, and a third is tasty. Whatever slick outfit you are clubbing in will be instantly ruined by the cascade of grease that jets out of both ends of the slice if you attempt to fold it and take a bite. At any rate, the pizza scene in D.C. was bound to suffer some vigilante justice. After heroically firing one or two shots from his assault rifle, Mr. Welch told police he had come to self-investigate Comet Ping Pong, or simply Comet, as true DC insiders abbreviate it, and its alleged subterranean pedophilia dungeon. Leaked emails from Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, John Podesta, uncannily painted a picture of a vast underground network of child sex slaves, Johns, and the powerful liberal <laughs> puppet masters who administer it. Brave sleuths on 4chan and Reddit's r slash the Donald and r slash Pizzagate cracked the code used to keep this blackest of markets secret, but profitable. Liberal publications laughed up the vile revelations, but all reasonable viewers knew that they were either frightened or secretly interested. Mr. Welch's arrest made it clear that the city was hiding something grave. Inspired by Welch's stifled attempt at on-the-ground gonzo activist journalism, I knew I would find my way to Comet Ping Pong, but I didn't know where it was or anything because I didn't really care very much. I thought to myself, of course there are child sex rings in this city, and of course there are nasty $15 personal pizzas with like truffle oil and shit on them. Everyone knows about their symbiotic relationship and their place in the network of utter per sexual perversion in the nation's capital. None of this is news. I didn't seek Comet Ping Pong out. Instead, it snuck up from behind and pounced, like John Podesta has done to so many unsuspecting youths. I thought that I would have a peaceful afternoon shopping for books for my family, but when I saw its corny neon sign, I knew I was trapped. I entered the vile ping-pong-themed restaurant apprehensively at about 4.30 in the afternoon. Why is ping-pong the theme, you may ask? Despite being the sport of choice for the sexually perverted, the ping-pong theme, at least for this particular establishment, is an act of defiance, a brazen statement of individuality and nonconformity, at least as far as Northwest D.C. goes. After all, when Comet Ping Pong opened in 2006, owner James Alifantis clashed with the local advisory neighborhood commission over his restaurant's placement of a ping-pong table on the sidewalk to attract and entertain customers. Frank Winstead, a member of the commission, even resorted to publishing a YouTube video called Ping Pong in Public Space, revealing damning footage of customers playing the vile sport with no regard for traffic or decency. 
Winstead accused Aliphantus of attempting to turn the neighborhood into Adams Morgan with the murders and rapes. However, a nail-biter 4-3 vote in the commission ruled in favor of Comet Ping-Pong, and the table stayed. Clearly, Comet had to have a lot of power to emerge unscathed from its brush with a tyrannical Northwest D.C. neighborhood association. Of course, today, the restaurant is highly regarded by everyone from the Washingtonian magazine, which put the restaurant in the top tier of Washington pizzerias, to Guy Fieri, who called its Yaley clam pizza one of the best he's ever had. GQ also named James Aliphantus the 49th most powerful person in Washington based on the power of the ping pong. I sat down at Comet Ping Pong and ordered a pitcher of beer, a Pudinesca pizza, and six wings. I was sharing the food with someone else, so don't get on the writer about his diet, please. I was treated to the soft musings of the man sitting next to me, telling his date about how he is polyamorous. Of course, this was an auspicious place for such conversation. My server was kind and hipsterly, but distant. What had he seen in the guts of this place? Each table in Comet Ping Pong is shaped like a mini ping pong table. Larger ping pong tables could be found in the back, but I shuddered to play. The balls were clearly human harvested, and I don't support that particular supply chain. What's more, (laughs) there is no trace of the outside ping pong table that Winstead had been so concerned about. Perhaps it has been moved, like so many poor children. Underground? My Putinesca pizza was like any other personal pizza you can obtain in the area, with a fluffy crust and a healthy balance of olives and anchovies, but it was disturbingly child-sized. The meatballs were also curiously small, and the sauce tasted watery. Essence of tears, perhaps? The wings were fleshy and flavorless, served with weird horseradish dressing that I quickly became suspicious of. The beer was the most normal part of the meal, as this was clearly geared towards adults and not the waifs forced to entertain them. People in D.C. may be willing to pay for sex with children, but they certainly would not want to see any liquor license violations. (laughs) At the end of the day, I felt like any other Comet Ping Pong patron, except for the fact that I dislike Ping Pong, and I didn't have sex with children. However, I was still charged far too much to put my mouth on criminally small portions. What's more, the spread of overpriced Neapolitan pizzas across the nation's capital can only serve as evidence of the success of the Podesta child sex ring. Why else would campaign funds be spent so frequently on such a mediocre establishment? Why is pizza suddenly a DC thing? Who seriously thinks that a 10-inch pizza should cost as much as three large pizzas from Little Caesars? What, because it has fucking Grana Padano on it? I left with more questions than answers, and I wasn't entirely sure I hadn't consumed baby parts in some manner or other. I can only imagine what a DC outsider like Welsh would have thought, seeing such high price points for such tiny portions. It's certainly criminal, and we need answers now more than ever. Inspiring. I can't imagine uh, you would eat there again. Not unless I'm bringing... uh... (laughs) Well, I probably shouldn't say on the air that I would bring, like, weaponry to pizza, to the comedy ping pong place. Just so but. everyone knows, he wasn't, we don't actually think Pizzagate is real. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's clear in the read, but... <laughs> but nothing could explain why people around here eat the kind of pizza that they eat. It's just... Because they're all, like, fucking boring lanyards who don't actually, like, have any, like, cultural tastes. Like, like D.C. has the weirdest food trends. Aside from the food that D.C. actually does well, like Ethiopian food and, you know, the Vietnamese food. Like, they're the, just odd, odd food trends. I don't know. There'll be more on that in later uh, installations of Le Boulet des Mais. But I felt like I had to get the truth out there. I think you succeeded at doing that and more.
Well, that was an entertaining read, and I hope you were entertained in this episode of The Plunge. Uh, Sam, any closing thoughts? Well, we should be happy that Roy Moore is gone, but this whole net neutrality thing <laughs> is something we all need to be like actively a little <laughs> wary of. I don't know if you've seen like any of those like disturbing pictures of like what internet looks like in Portugal and like Spain where they have like the package plan for like certain websites like you can get like oh the TV package and like the news package and it's just like I mean, I don't even know how we would publish this podcast. We'd have to like probably just pay more, I guess, for SoundCloud. I have no idea. Yeah, I think Nick Weiger from Doughboys tweeted something to the effect of Ajit Pai should never eat a meal without pubes in it again. Like, he should have 500 calories a day of just pubes. Yeah, you can't be that unaccountable to the people. Like, you can't have 80% of the country fucking hating what you're doing and you just have a normal life. Every day that you walk outside should be difficult for you if you're that big of a dick. Oh, and apparently the uh, musician behind the Harlem Shake uh, is suing to get uh, (laughs) them to take down the video. Yes! I was going to say, I can't imagine the Daily Caller's legal team is that hard to take down. (laughs) Like, it seems like there's a bunch (laughs) of dunces over there. I just picture them more as probably, like, six guys who were, like, extremely, like, obese and, like, you know, underground somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, there's probably a lot of beige suits there. (laughs) All right, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Hanukkah, Hanukkah, Yonte Fashener, Allustiger, Freilicher, Nitono, Hazener, Alle Nacht in Dreidel spielen mir, So die Käselatjes essen mir, Geschwinder sind Kinder, Die Hanike Lichterlachon, Lo mir alle singen, Lo mir alle springen, Und lo mir alle tanzen in Korn. Lo mir alle singen und lo mir alle springen und lo mir alle tanzen in Korn. Hanukkah, Hanukkah, come light the menorah. Let's have a party, we'll all dance the horror. Gather round the table, we'll give you a treat. Dreidels to play with, latkes to eat. And while we are playing...